All right, hey, good morning, friends. Uh, welcome to Cedar Mill again. I'm Pastor Dave. We're going to dive right into the message this morning. And so if you have a Bible, pull it out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. If you're using the Pew Rack Bible provided in front of you there, it's page 845. Today, Jesus is going to uh, get up into our face a bit about the subject of greed. And as we dive in this morning, as you turn there, let me just say that I think this subject is huge for us, not because so many of us in here would say that we are really wrestling with greed, but because most of us in this room, if we're honest, would not really think that we are. And uh, there's this quote from Tim Keller from a book that he wrote that I've used before, but it's so good. I, I wanted to read it to you again because I think it gets right to the heart of the issue here. Here's, here's what Keller writes. He says, some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series on the seven deadly sins. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet that the week you deal with greed, you will have your lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even for pride, but nobody thinks they're greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they are struggling with almost every kind of sin, but I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed, Keller writes, hides itself from the victim. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that says, this could easily be a problem for me. This could easily be a problem for me. You see, what most of us would say is, I could definitely be more generous. Sure, I have a ways to go there, but I'm certainly not greedy. You know, I was, re- I was reminded this week that our most popular image for greed, the thing most of us think about, or a lot of us anyway, when the word greed is uttered, is, is this picture of Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, this heartless old rich miser who only cares about stacking his money and hoarding it to him for himself, you know, ha 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 ha, right? That's, like, that's what we think about greed, that's greedy people, right? I'm not like that, I'm not greedy. But the question today is a different question, not what do you think of greed, what's the picture of greed in our culture? The question today is, what's Jesus' picture of greed? What does Jesus say greed looks like in the human heart? That's the question we'll answer today as we dive into Luke 12, starting in verse 13. And let me remind you, as Jesus uh, begins to speak here, that in this time, in this moment, he is addressing a large crowd. You'll remember from last week, if you were here, that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people have gathered and they are pushing and shoving and clawing um, you know, past one another just to get a glimpse of Jesus, just to hear him, just to be in his presence. And in this moment, as the ca- crowd gathers and Jesus prepares to teach and people push and shove, all of a sudden, Luke tells us this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Someone in the crowd calls out to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, we'll stop right here because this may seem like a weird moment to you. It does to me a bit. A weird question to ask Jesus in in the midst of this crowd, but... In Jesus' day, in first century Israel, this was actually a very common thing to happen. Rabbis were often called upon to settle uh, legal matters, legal disputes, because there was not an advanced judicial system um, in that in that region, in that culture. And 
Jesus would be an especially appropriate rabbi to ask about this because he often had a lot to say about money. In fact, one thing you'll notice about Jesus if you read the Bible, if you read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke, is that besides the kingdom of God, which is his number one topic, the thing he talks about more than anything else, the subject he addresses second to that is actually the subject of money. I I was doing some study and reading this week, and one thing I read is that in the Gospels, 28% of the time that Jesus opens his mouth, he was either talking about wealth, possessions, or money. He was addressing and challenging and instructing on those issues. 28% of the time. And here's why I believe this was the case. Here's why I believe Jesus spent so much time here. Money is revealing of the true nature of our hearts. You see, in the Christian life, it is so easy for you and me to have moments of emotion or inclination, to have this this feeling and to, to confuse feeling with faith, feeling with following. I had this moment where I felt emotional about this thing, and so I must be a follower of Jesus. So many of us live out our lives uh, with God in this way. But money, friends is the tangible, concrete, quantifiable way of determining where your heart truly is. And this plays out in all sorts of ways, but let me give you just a couple examples. Let me apply this to the three core Christian virtues. Faith, love, hope. These are big virtues for us in this church. We talk a lot about them here. Um, see, here's what money does. Here's what money, how money informs these three virtues. Faith. You know, it's easy to, to sit in church and say, yeah, I have faith, I trust God. But then money comes back and says to us, well, then why don't you give more? Then why are you not more generous? And the real answer is, well, I don't have faith. I don't fully trust that God will take care of me, that he will really fulfill me. So instead of being generous with my money, I keep my money, I hoard my money, I'm selfish with my money, I use money as sort of a backup plan in case God doesn't really come through for me, right? In case he doesn't sort of support me the way that he says he will. And so I trust God, but I have sort of a backup plan to God. It's my money. Um, Then there's love. You know, we say, hey, we love people. We see people in pain who are in need, who are hurting, and we love them, we have compassion for them. But then, but then money says, hey, if you look at the facts, the facts of your checkbook, the fact of, the fact of your wallet, you really don't love people enough to sacrifice your own personal comforts and wants and desires. You see, see, money makes you be really, really honest with yourself and what's happening. And then there's hope. Hope is about where you get your value, where you find your sense of worth. And we all know that the right answer in church is to say, um, my sense of value and worth, my hope is in God. But then the question is, then why do you spend so much money on making yourself look good to other people? Right? If, if your real hope is in God, if it's firmly founded there, then why does your money not reflect that? You see, money, our money is a reality check on every single one of the virtues. It shows us, if we want to believe, you know, it says, what you want to tell yourself you believe, do you really believe it? And for this reason, Jesus speaks about money often 
And he speaks about money boldly. He does not shy away. Now, one other thing to notice here as we sort of set the stage for Jesus' teaching is this guy's tendency. Um, and I point it out because I believe that it's your tendency and mine as well. His tendency is to focus on and, and, and kind of draw attention to other people's money issues instead of thinking about himself. What does he do here? Hey, Jesus, tell my brother. My brother's got some issues in this money area, Jesus. He really needs some instruction from you. Uh, The way this might play out for you today is you might be sitting here and you might be tempted to think like, oh, good, I'm really glad Jim or Lisa or Bill or Fred is here to hear this message. Oh, I wish my uncle was here. This would be the perfect message for him. So often we're tempted to do that. And what Jesus wants to say to us this morning is, no, no. This message is for everyone. This message is actually for you. And so the person I want you focused on is the one sitting right in your seat. (laughs) It's you. And maybe at least part of Jesus' denial to sort of fix this wrong or to address this situation is that he says to this man in in not such a subtle way, I want you to think about yourself right now. So now Jesus will launch in, he will instruct, and he will talk about, again, the power of money. Verse 15, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You'll remember that last week Jesus used almost this exact same language when he was talking about hypocrisy. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He said that last week. You see, right now Luke is stringing together a series of messages from Jesus where he is warning us about things that can derail our spiritual life. Jesus is saying here, hey, you want to follow me? You want to like, be a follower of mine? You want to have a life that's connected with God and that's rich and full in him? Well, watch out. There are some things that are going to uh, derail you, that are going to very subtly and very sneakily slip into your life and prevent you from being and becoming everything God wants you to be and become. Greed, the word here in Greek is pleonexia. And it's, it means this. Greedy desire to have more, covetousness, avarice, insatiable desire to gain. Watch out, be on your guard against a way of life where your number one priority is to acquire more for yourself. Watch out. Be on your guard against a life where you use most of your time, most of your energy, most of your resources to upgrade your lifestyle, your kingdom, to go for more and newer and shinier and better. And I already have ten, but I just need one more pair and then I'll be happy, content, satisfied. Watch out. Be on your guard against a life where tile countertops are unacceptable because everyone has granite these days, or routine designer drinks become something I deserve, or the newest version of whatever smartphone you like is an absolute must, or the car that you drive, or the clothes that you wear, or the house that you own constantly needs upgrading. Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard, because this kind of attitude and focus and behavior can just slip right into your existence. And ultimately, it will rob you. It will rob you of the real, genuine, 
active, vigorous, blessed, devoted to God life that he longs for you to live. Because just like hypocrisy, greed is sneaky. It slides in. It doesn't always look like Scrooge. It's got this amazing cloaking device, this ability to sort of morph itself and look a whole lot of different ways. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Many shapes and sizes, friends. You know, uh, one thing in my life that I really like and this is real personal information, so if we can just keep it here, is I really have this love of hats. I love hats. I like to wear hats. I'm a ball cap wearer. Like I have a slew of ball caps in my closet, and I wear them often. I don't wear them on Sundays, and so you guys don't see me with hats on, but if you see me out and about, I'll often have a ball cap on. And I know at least part of this is... You know, probably due to my receding hairline and there's some vanity issues here and that's a whole nother sermon. We're just going to set that aside for now. But I really like to wear ball caps and I have a lot of ball caps for this reason. And just the other day, this is like two weeks ago, I was wearing one of my favorite hats and I was noticing that it was starting to wear out a little bit. And so as I went to kind of put it away in the closet, I thought to myself, you know, it's kind of wearing out a little bit. I should probably get a new hat. And so I grab the computer and I jump online and dial up Amazon where you can get anything you want in moments. And I start searching for hats and I'm dialing up all these hats and I've got all these ones that I like open on the screen. So finally I turn to my wife and I ask her, hey honey, I'm thinking of buying a new hat. Which one do you like? Which one do you think I should go for? And her immediate response is, you don't need a new hat. You've got like a million hats. Why are you buying a new hat? I'm like, I didn't ask if I should buy a hat. I asked which one you like. And she's like, I like the ones in your closet. And I'm like, no, which one of these, you know? And so finally, after this debate about if I need one or not, she says, okay, if you're going to buy one, which you shouldn't, if you think you need one, which you don't, then I would pick that one. And she points to one. I'm like, that one? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, not these others? And she's like, I'm like, no, that one. I'm like, okay. So sure enough, like, pow, pow, pow click. It's on its way. Here it comes, right? And I was feeling good about it, like got my hat. And then as I went to sort of close down the window, I noticed this other hat that I also liked a lot, maybe more than the one that she picked. And so I started looking at it and I was thinking, you know, maybe I need two hats. I have some, you know, I have some other hats that are wearing out. I could pro- I could, and I had that Christmas money because Amy's grandma gave me a check for Christmas this year and just like buy whatever you want. I had that Christmas money and most of the time what I do is I just take the Christmas money and use it to fund the kids' Christmas. But it's really for me, right? I mean, she wants me to spend it on me and so I deserve, it's just a hat. It's not a car. And I, so sure enough, you know, a few clicks later, some information entered and hat number two is coming. And now I need to ask you to pray for me real quick because this is the moment right here, this moment here, where my wife is learning for the first time that I've ordered a second hat. So that could go badly um, later on this afternoon. Actually, I don't see her in here right at this moment. So thank you, God. Um, Anyway, so I have this hat moment, this hat kind of incident episode. And then a few days later, again, this is just how it happened. This is how God works in my life because... He's God. I am opening my Bible to prepare for the message that I'm going to preach today, and I read these words. Life does not consist in an abundance of hats. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, talk about some words to memorize. 
Yeah, Carl did this a few weeks back when he, when he preached. He, he, you know, had you guys kind of memorize a Bible verse. And, and when I heard that, I thought, man, that was a great idea. Uh, like, uh, we should do that more often. Like, just memorize scripture verses together because there's power in it. And so I'm taking like a, a play out of his playbook today. And, and let's just burn these words of Jesus onto our brains this morning. Read, read this verse with me again. Read these words with me. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. One more time. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You see, I was thinking how helpful these words might be. How freeing, how empowering they might be to help us resist temptation when we're roaming through our favorite store. Or hovering the cursor over the buy with one click button on Amazon. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. You see, Jesus is reminding us here. He's telling us that the satisfaction, meaning, lasting fulfillment our souls are seeking will never be found in the things of this world. The word life that he uses here, it's the Greek word zoe and it doesn't just refer to like breathing, to existing, to being alive. It speaks to the absolute fullness of life. It speaks to an existence that's marked by vitality. It's real, genuine, active, vigorous, devoted to God, blessed life. In chapter 1, verse 4, John um, uses this very word to describe Jesus. And he says, in him was Life, Zoe, and that life, Zoe, was the light of all mankind. Jesus himself uses this word when he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, that humanity may experience existence the way God intended for them to exist. You see, Jesus says a full, vigorous existence is not found in the abundance of possessions. And when you are tempted to live your life as if it does, you've been hoodwinked. You've been bamboozled by this sneaky, sly little thing called greed. Verse 16, and he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now, we'll kind of back it up and start from the top here. First of all, we're told that Jesus tells a parable. And a parable, most of us know this, but for review, it's just simply a story that makes a point. It's a story that takes ideas or concepts or principles or theology and, and makes it personal and applicable, and real to you and me. And one of the things you'll find if you study and read the parables of Jesus is that quite often he tells them, he designs them in order that we might ask ourselves very personal questions about our own lives. The point of a parable 
is to say, hey, how does this principle, this concept, this idea kind of come all the way down and really impact me? And so um, at the end of this story, this parable wants us to ask a question. It's sort of begging for you and me, as Jesus tells this story. It's begging for us to ask this very pertinent, personal, convicting question. And the question I believe that Jesus longs for you and me and everyone who hears it to ask is simply this. Am I like this rich man? Am I like this Rich man in the story, do I live my life the way he did? And and when we look at the story, what we find is that when you break it down, it's simply about a guy who's got plenty, his basic needs are certainly met, and then what happens? Then he gets more. He gets a bonus check, a promotion, a raise at work. He gets a nice commission on a sale that he made. Some inheritance comes his way. Grandma sends him a check for Christmas. And in this case, specifically, we're told that, you know, he gets a good crop. A a good crop comes his way. And who does this guy automatically and exclusively think of in that moment? When the money comes in, when there's a gift, when, like... Like there's like the, a windfall of cash. The first person he thinks about is himself. You see the striking truth of verses 17 and 18, and I love the way Luke writes here. Listen to this. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Do you see the obnoxious number of personal pronouns used here? Two verses, five eyes and three mys. Am I like this rich man? Are we? When God gives and provides and blesses us financially is our number one concern, our primary focus, our overwhelming response to that provision. How am I going to use that money for me? My lifestyle, my family, my world, my security, my kingdom. And here's where I think it gets even more challenging. This is where it gets really tough, friends. Listen to this guy's plan. Listen to what he, he, he wants to do here. He says, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Do you see what he's doing? Do you see what his plan is? He's saving. He's not going on a spending spree. He's not purchasing elaborate clothes or cars or cruises. He's not doing things that we'd all say like, wow, that's really selfish. That's super greedy. Do you know what he's doing? He's maxing out his 401k. That's what he's doing. And and this is why I think this passage is so challenging. I relate to this guy. I relate to him. I get where he's coming from. I understand his desire and heart. In some ways, he is me. Not because I have so much money, but because by nature, I too am actually a saver. You see, some of you in here, when you get money, you just want to spend it. Like it's burning a hole in your pocket. You get it, you spend it. You get it, you spend it. You cannot wait to buy that next thing. And and we judge you and we ridicule you and that is an issue in your life. But others of us in this room, we're savers. We get money and we stick it away. And savers, you know what we do? We judge spenders. 
Like, we consider ourselves better than you, but with Jesus in this story, who's he actually addressing? Who's he challenging? He's challenging this guy who is a saver. And that's my instinct. My instinct, when I get money, I may buy a thing or two. For the most part, I look forward to sticking money away for a rainy day. And I'll tell you why. If I'm really honest with you, the reason I like having money in the bank is it makes me feel safe. It it makes me feel secure. It helps me not worry about the future. And, and friends, on some level, this is not a bad thing because saving is a good thing. Saving is a biblical thing. The Bible says, hey, prepare for the future, save for the future, store up stuff for a rainy day. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is from Proverbs chapter 6. Listen to this. Listen to this. this is great. These are great words. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. I just like the word lazy bones in the Bible, although I think it's a paraphrase. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, no one's forcing them, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. You see, this is not a message, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, don't save. This is not a message against saving. This is not Jesus saying, don't be wise in planning for the future. He affirms the scriptures. He believes in that. But it is a message challenging this. Where we find our security, where we put our hope, where we seek satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. It's also a message, I believe, that's meant to directly rebuke what many of us in this room believe retirement should look like. Because let's, let's get honest. Let's just put all the cards on the table here. So many of us have actually been sucked into a way of life that looks a whole heck of a lot like this wealthy farmer. I'm going to put as much money in the bank as I possibly can so that I can feel safe, I can feel secure, and that one day I'll live the good life. One day life will be good, right? Because I've got money stored up for me. You see, there are a couple lies in our, in our world around money and possessions. On the one hand, there's this lie that says, spend your money now. Spend all of it and even more than you have. Go in debt if you need to, to get stuff and to have experiences. Why? Because what you have and what you experience and what you acquire will determine how rich and full and significant and satisfying your life really is. So go nuts. That's lie number one. But, but there's another lie. Uh, The greed that Jesus challenges here is lie number two. And this lie says that if you save and store up enough, enough money, then someday, someday down the road, you'll have experiences and you can buy things and you can feel secure for all your days. And then you will live the rich, full, satisfying, blessed life in retirement, right? In fact, if you look at verse 19, I'd argue that there is perhaps no better description of American retirement or the American retirement mindset that some of us are are planning for than what this guy is planning for and dreaming about here. Listen to these words. Tell me if this does not describe what most people think of as uh, a 21st century American retirement. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, 
drink, and be merry. You're saved and saved and saved for yourself. Now it's time for the good life. Uh, That same verse in the ESV is translated this way. And I think this is profound. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Friends, we are... When we are tempted to live this way, we do it for the same reason the rich man does. And it's because we think, no matter what we say, no matter what we think we think, we think an abundance of possessions will bring satisfaction and peace and joy and fullness to our souls. But look what God says about this philosophy of life. Look what he says to this man. He says, you fool." You're nothing but a fool. You see, sometimes when we think about the word fool, we just think about somebody who's not smart. But that is actually not what the word fool means in the Bible at all. In fact, I'd argue that this rich farmer is very smart. He's very savvy. He is very wise in the ways of the world. But the word fool in the Bible means something very specific. It means someone who is out of touch with God's definition of reality. Someone who doesn't understand how the world works from God's perspective. Someone who might be really savvy about how the world works here and now, but they don't have God's take on it. And so what God is saying to this guy is, you have pinned your hopes, you have pinned your dreams, you have pinned your happiness and fulfillment and security on something that while it may feel good in the moment, it will ultimately disappoint you. It will ultimately let you down. It will someday be taken away from you forever. And then Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Now you'll notice here again that Jesus isn't against storing things up. What he's warning us against is letting greed, letting the storing up of things shift us away from this rich life toward God. He's saying, is your number one priority, is your highest priority to be rich toward God? Is that what really your life is about? Again, look at the money, look at the cash flow. The facts are your friends here. That's what Jesus is challenging us with. He's saying, be rich towards God first. Don't let money and possessions and wealth distract you from this very rich, wonderful thing that will give your life what you really long for and what it really needs. So let me, let me close this this way this morning as we spend a few more minutes. What does this look like? Because some of you are like me and you're kind of analytical and you say, okay, like I can buy into that. I, I surrender. I'm, I'm kind of like the rich man. You've convinced me, Pastor Dave. I have a tendency to be like him and think like him and want to act like him, but I don't want to. I don't want to be like the rich man. I don't want to be this guy. But what does that mean? What does that really practically look like for my life? Does this mean I should never get a new cell phone? I mean, I've had this flip phone for eight years and it won't dial the number four and the screen only works half the time, but I guess I'll just sort of stick it out. Sorry, I can't call you. Your phone number has the number four in it. Like... You'll have to call me, you know? Does this mean I should never drive a nice car? Does this mean I can never update things on my house? Does this mean that I should feel ashamed of the money that I have in the bank? I mean, I want to be this generous, non-greedy person, but what does that really look like in our world today? Because on, on the one hand, right, we can justify anything. We can justify any and everything. We're really good at deceiving ourselves. On the other hand, we can just live in perpetual guilt, 
and feel guilty about everything as well. And God does not want either of those things. He wants you, hear this, He wants you to enjoy your stuff. He, inc- he created you to enjoy your stuff. He gave you that stuff for your pleasure and enjoyment so that you can worship Him as you use it. Like, your joy brings Him joy. He's not this God who's like the fun police. Never enjoy anything or save any money or else I knew you didn't love me. Like you're not a fun... No, it's not God. It's not His deal. So here is how uh, I think we can guard against becoming like this rich man. I'm just going to give you a few very basic but fundamental principles of Bible money management that I think sort of keep you away and put a safeguard between you and becoming like this this rich dude. Okay. Three words I'm going to give you. They all start with the letter P. I'm feeling P-ish today. That was weird. Okay. The first one is this. Priority. 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 Money management says my number one priority is God. So before I fund my lifestyle, before I fund my retirement, before I fund my house, my car, my TV, my computer, my government, and even my kids' education, I am going to give to the kingdom of God outside of my kingdom. I'm going to invest in the work of God outside of of my sphere. Because like some of you would say, well, I'm investing in the kingdom of God through my children, right? That's pretty self-serving. And so God says, yeah, okay, out here, away from you. Invest in the kingdom of God. You know, this means that automatically your lifestyle will drop. Automatically your priorities will be ordered. Automatically in a very tangible way, you'll be saying, God, your priorities are ahead of my priorities. And what priority giving does is I think it kills greed before greed even has a chance. It pummels the me first tendency that lives in all of us. And friends, you need that because you're just like me and you're real good at justifying the purchase of that second hat, whatever that second hat is for you. Priority. Second word is percentage. If if priority deals with the when of giving, like the order of giving, then percentage deals with how much. How much am I supposed to give God? How much does he deserve? How much is enough? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about this. And one benchmark that many of you know about is the biblical principle of tithing. Um, The word tithe is a word that literally means a tenth part, 10%. But it's not my goal in this message to give a, a comprehensive analysis of biblical giving and percentages and tithing and all of that. Um, I think it's a real good thing to be aware of. I think it's a very solid benchmark. But honestly, if you're a, a follower of Jesus Christ, I think the New Testament calls us out and above and beyond tithing. I think the New Testament calls followers of Jesus to actually practice sacrificial giving, where we give of our resources to the point where it's, it's forcing us to sacrifice. Some of you could tithe with your eyes closed and it wouldn't even impact you. For others of you, that would be a significant amount. But here's the important point. Here's the point I'd want to challenge you with today. Whether you're working towards tithing or you're growing from tithing, pick a percentage Pick a percentage that challenges you, that stretches you, that forces you, or maybe I should say gives you the opportunity to have more faith, to really trust God, to say, man, if if I was to invest that much money, then I'd have to really trust God to provide. So that's an exercise in faith. And then 
you'd have an opportunity to grow in faith because God would actually have an opportunity to come through for you. But pick a percentage. Don't let it be ambiguous. Just say, here's our percentage that we give before anything else. Again, saves you from this moment where you're going, you know, maybe this month it should be a little less because we had that thing or is this opportunity or that da-da-da happened on the car or it was Christmas time. You know, it, no, save yourself from that personal debate that's happening. Just pick a number. Um, I'll also say, I'll take this opportunity to say that for any of you who are here and you're kind of all of a sudden thinking like, yep, I knew it. I knew it. I haven't been in church for a while, but I knew it. All the church wants is my money. This guy is slick. This pastor on the stool up there, I don't normally sit on a stool if you're new, but um, he's, he's smooth, man. He's trying to get into my wallet. Let me just say this. No, I'm not. Like, if, if this is not your home church, if you don't go here, you don't know me, you don't trust me, this place seems shady to you, give somewhere else. Give to another, um, like, organization or, or place or person who's doing kingdom work. Don't feel obligated to give here. Don't let the enemy use that excuse to get you off the hook and then entrap you in this thing that Jesus says will destroy your soul, greed. Right? Because here's the other reality. I'll confess to you, like, uh, I'm, I, already, I already confess that I have the propensity to buy an extra hat. Like, don't trust me with your money. We have people, like, in accountability over me. I don't control all that stuff. So don't trust me with, with your money. But guess what? You're just like me. Don't trust you. <laughs> I'm just going to let myself decide every month how much it should be. Why? Because I'm uncorruptible. Really? Like, know yourself well enough to know that you're just as corruptible as I am. Right? So set an amount. And give to kingdom work somewhere. I'll also say one other thing. If this is your church, if this is your church family, give here boldly and generously. We're not perfect, but this church has amazing things happening. We do wonderful things with your money. Um, there's wonderful accountability structures set up to make sure it gets to the right place. And again, not perfect, but good stuff. It's, it's a great place to invest. Again, I, it won't impact... My hat collection at all. Some of you are thinking I'm going to have a lot of hats after this message. I won't. My wife's going to actually make me return that other one. So um, it's not working in my favor. This is not about me. This is not about some pressing financial need in our church. It's just the next passage that came along in Luke. It's Jesus. Luke ordered it this way, not me. So um, don't miss, because of excuses, the opportunity to enter into a life of increasing generosity. Because that's what will change your heart and soul. That's what Jesus says. Okay, that's two words. Priority, percentage, and now we're on to the third word, progressive. Um, priority, when should I give? Percentage, how much? Progressive, where is my giving headed? And I alluded to this a little bit already, um, but I'll say it again. The idea is, giving is never supposed to be this, this rule we follow or this goal we achieve, but it's something that we grow into. The idea is, is that as you walk with Jesus and you experience his love and grace and transformation in your life, that he changes you and that you become more and more and more a generous person. You will know you're starting to get it when you start to have conversations like this. How can I rework the budget so that I can get that TV I want? No. How can I rework the budget so that I can... Fund that missionary that needs some extra cash or invest in that kingdom opportunity that I think sounds so amazing. See, when your conversations start to shift for how can I give more, 
and, and shift away from like, how much do I have to give today? Then you'll know that your heart has been touched. You see, the other thing I'll say uh, in this moment is this. One thing we've completely confused in our culture is this idea that money is this very personal, private matter. One of the reasons it's really hard to talk about money in church and people get uncomfortable is because we've bought into this lie in our culture that your money is your business and it should be. And it's this very personal, private thing. You don't want anybody knowing how much you make or how much you give or telling you what to do with your stuff. That's what the world would have you say. Now, ironically, we've kind of taken the opposite view on sex. My sex is actually supposed to be this very private, personal thing. And yet in our culture, what? It's this very public thing. People will talk about it, share about it, you know, experiment with it, whatever. It's this very private, very public moment. It's supposed to be private. And money has gotten flipped. I actually think it's really healthy to give other people a look into your financial world. It's good accountability for you. It doesn't have to be this very private thing. We all need help in this area. Find some people you trust. Ask them to take a look at the facts of your life and then to help you. That's okay. Ask them to help you grow in giving. Ask them to help you be more of a progressive giver to the kingdom of God. That was a little bit of a a tangent, Um, but I think it's important. Because tithing is not like this, this like cap on your giving. Sometimes it's a starting place. So no matter where you are, seek to be a person who's growing in generosity and then see what God does with that to touch your heart. All right, I said I had three Ps today and and I actually lied. Um, Right before the service this morning, I added a fourth P because as I sort of pondered this message, it just felt incomplete and the Holy Spirit just said, okay, you gotta do one more thing here at the end. And so I added a fourth P and I did it at the first service and then I was told by a couple people that I should choose a new word, but I couldn't come up with a different P word because my fourth P word is the word probe. <laughs> which I knew would make Pastor Matt really happy because he'll just make fun of me all week for that. And I just want you to know, that's the, how it works on the teaching team. Um, and I had probe your motivations, but someone said like maybe be passionate about your motivations or... Don't procrastinate. I don't know. There's no other word. Probe your motivations. Like, like dig in there and kind of figure out what's really happening on the inside. That's way, that's no good. Okay. Here's the point. You have to understand that giving just to give, giving if it's just an external exercise is not what God longs for you. If you are giving just to look good or to fulfill some obligation or to even earn God's favor favor in some way, then you have missed the point. We're in this section where Jesus has been saying and teaching, Matt covered a couple weeks ago, um, he's saying, hey, you can't just clean the outside of the cup, you've got to clean the inside of the cup. It's not just about your external life, what other people see, it's about your internal heart and motivations. And so friends, money is this beautiful thing because The question is, does money, does what you do with your money change your heart? Or does the place and status of your heart determine what you do with your money? And the answer is, yes. The answer is they have the power to lead one another. That's what Jesus says. And so here's the challenge. Don't just let this be an external act. Make sure that as you grow in generosity and as you grow in giving, that you give room for that action to change and shape your heart. Make sure you understand 
why you're giving, where your giving comes from, and what ultimately, if you're a follower of Jesus, should motivate your increased generosity. One author I read this week said, We empty our barns. While the world says, store up everything you can, we empty our barns for him. We empty our barns for others. Why? Because God first emptied himself for us. He came and said, I'm not going to hold on to power and glory and privilege and status, but I'm going to empty myself. And now you, as my followers, you go and do likewise. You go and empty yourself on this world in every single area possible, including the area of your finances. You see, if the death and resurrection of Jesus, the sacrifice of the Son of God, the love of God poured out, emptied out for us, if that is not the driving force of your giving, then it's just an act. That's just something you're doing. But if you allow your giving to shape your heart and you allow your heart to drive your giving, then you're starting to understand what it means to be a Christian. One who follows Jesus. So this morning... Um, we're done today. Like this is one of those days where the sermon ends the, 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 the morning. We don't have communion. There's no more worship songs. Like as soon as I say, amen, you are free and out of here. But before you just rush off, maybe some of you need to take a second and ask that question again. Am I like this rich man? Where in my life am I tempted to be like this rich man? What are the temptations for me? the places where I need to allow the internal motivation of the cross of Jesus Christ to form and reshape my thinking towards my money and possessions. So if you need to sit for a minute, sit. If you need to talk about that today, talk about it. But do not miss out on this wonderfully rich truth that Jesus offers us today. Pray with me. Father, thank you for... This challenging passage that I have to say um, checked me in a couple places this week. It did. And so thank you for that. Uh, Take these words that were spoken and apply them to each of our lives and then help us as a community of followers be more gracious, generous people motivated by your love. That's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you, friends. Have a great day and we will see you soon.